0: This episode of the Rad Podcast is brought to you by Tech to You. Tech2U strives to deliver superior technical services from professional and friendly staff while maintaining their principles of credibility, accountability, and customer service as they grow. With locations all over Northern California, Southern California, and Las Vegas, Tech2U provides in-shop repair, mobile services for residential and business, and remote service provided online. Tech2U repairs everything ranging from printers, scanners, screen repair, motherboards, keyboards, touchpads, they'll even recycle electronics. Visit www.tech2u.com. That's tech, the number two, U com or call 888-340-8324 that's 888-340-8324 for tech to you the rad the, broadcast. Broadcast. the rad broadcast uh welcome to another episode of the rad podcast i'm producer brandon from the rad radio show thank you for tuning in once again and of course uh I like to to kind of have a swinging door of of guests on the show. and this time I invited a. Uh Old, not former producer Nick. He's still a current producer for the show.
1: I'm still on the payroll. That's I'm still right. getting checks from Rob Williams, so that counts.
0: It's official, and they still cash, right? They still cash. Good. Um, and uh, so I, I thought I'd just have him in and kind of catch up on where we were at last time. Since uh, it's been a couple of months, it feels like. Um, it's, it's summer break. A lot of us are out traveling and stuff. And uh, what have you been up to? What, Look, did you do anything fun?
1: Before we get into that, yes. you, know, you know what occurred to me in the in the, the first time we did the podcast. Mm-hmm. How long have we worked together? 15 years, something like that, 16? Well,
0: I've been with the show probably like 12 years, 13 years now. That's 12-ish. the
1: longest you and I have ever had a conversation. Like, don't you notice that in most of our work things, we're either running a 1,000 miles an hour, we'll stop, ask each other a question, keep moving, or if it's a show event where I'm filming something, you're either updating me quickly on something or I'm asking you to stand somewhere, and that's it. Even the times we've gone out and, like, hung out and drank together, like, we'll chat and kind of hang out. Yeah. But I, I it, it occurred to me five minutes into the broadcast of, like, this is the longest I've ever talked to Brandon ever. It was a weird feeling.
0: I wonder if that's why I kind of get nervous before we do these recordings because I, I I've always had like other people like buffer zones, and, right? You know, like Don or Rob or even our our misses is our wives. Um, they, they'll they'll kind of like act as you know part of the group. So I I I think I I did notice that. Now that you bring it up though, I there's probably been less than a handful of occasions that we've gone out to bars where we have gone off and talked on our own but again there's always like the distractions of other people and yeah it's 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 fascinating. And, I never it, thought about it's that. It's
1: weird the things that you notice out of context because you and I were talking in a manner we've never talked before, and it, it's a, it's visually humans kind of work that way too. Like there's lots of people that I work with in my res- restaurant job that you, we I'm used to seeing them in a uniform mm-hmm. or their hair a certain way tied tied up pulled back, and I will like walk walk right past them in public, and not recognize them, <laughs> turn around and go, oh my gosh, you know, Jim, how are you? I don't right. even recognize. Like you like walk right past somebody, and that and it's, it's it, like context can determine so many things, you know.
0: That's yeah, interesting. I, I I honestly never really gave it that much thought and it's nice though it's nice to have this opportunity to get to know you a little bit more and i even though i feel like i know you pretty well i think you know me pretty well especially since we we put a lot out there in our time with the show when you were doing uh the behind the scenes stuff actually in the studio you shared a lot about your life and you, you had web pages and websites all about things you were interested in and stuff. And I don't know that stuff probably still exists somewhere.
1: It does. So I've got a hard drive somewhere where I, I, I save everything I do. I can't decide if, if this makes me a hoarder or just uh, wanting to have an archive of things. I save every single thing I've ever done in terms of show stuff, pictures, former versions of the website. Mm-hmm. Uh, every video thing I, that I've ever done, I have like the files, uh, uh, like what, what I saved and backed up like the original master files. Mm-hmm. Half of them, yeah, I can't even access anymore because technology has gotten so far ahead. Like, <laughs> That's like, that, Those programs won't even open anymore. Right. There's uh, no more
0: reel to reels right. anymore.
1: Right. But it is, it is, um, it's just what, what technology is allowing is, is incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, like what I read something that every two and a half years, uh, the power of the computer microchip almost doubles. And in wow. terms of like the speed, what it can do, uh, you know, how many you can fit in a computer and they're working on now uh, uh, microchips and, and ways that computers can talk to each other that are as thin as like two or three electrons wide, That's like insane. That, that kind of crazy stuff. And so my old files uh, are, are not going to be that useful, but I still hoard them anyway. So yeah. I, I do these binge and purge things where I hoard everything from clothes to Computer files to everything, and then, and then like once every two or three years, I'll just stop and go through my entire house and just clean everything out. So I'm kind of in the middle of doing that right now, oh, which really? is why I brought you uh, the bag, which no one can see. It's a yeah. it. but you can I brought, hear it. Yeah, you can hear it. Uh, I about you bag of uh, tapes. it's a bag of Rob's old air checks and some old pictures of Rob that I, Rob's mother gave to me. Must have been fi- um, it literally must have been five years ago, and I keep I kept saying in my head, I'm going to get around to it. I'm going to get around to it, and it's sort of like when i don't know if you uh, have that thing where like you want to donate stuff to goodwill like yeah. extra clothes extra things and you put it in your trunk and you go i'm going to goodwill tomorrow and donate this and it stays in the back of your fucking trunk for like 2 months until so you finally yep. go to goodwill so that's that's the latest with me that that's my exciting summer.
0: Well, it's awesome. Um, but go back and going back to your uh, what your your hoarding problem with with the data and all the all the files from the show. Uh-huh. I wonder if that's the nature of the beast because I know I've learned from experience where I've been working on a project and I don't back something up and you're in the middle of it and something crashes yep. and then you lose that footage audio, mm-hmm. you know whatever you're working on forever. And I, I've found myself in the same position as you're in. Now I'm hoarding everything just in case, you know, and I, I don't, I have all these DV tapes, like the, the little digi, digital video tapes that we use when we are doing video files that way. I, that, it's been with SD cards for about five, six years plus now. Um, but I still have those tapes just in case. I don't have any of the cameras that works with them anymore, but, you know, it's just just in case I feel like there's some reason and it's also nostalgia. Like we've just been recently uh, clearing out the rad studios of old stuff. that's just been piled up and, and uh, like my office turned into a storage area of just a bunch of junk, old computers and, um, while filing through that, we found a bunch of like old plans from when we built the bu- building here, like all the schematics and all the blueprints and everything. And we even found some old newspaper clippings from the show, like 10, 15, 20 years ago. And Rob and I joke, we're, we're going to hold on to all this stuff so that when we turn the studio into the Rad Museum, we can charge admission and have people come in and like flip through all this stuff. And, you know, it's kind of fun to keep all, keep this stuff for nostalgic reasons, but I think For me, at least, um, when it comes to the technology, it's like a, a creature of habit now. You just gotta have it, just in case something bad happens.
1: This is such like a, a tech nerdy conversation, but there is a there is an axiom in the in the geek world of your data either exists in two places or no places. Exactly, Because computers always fail. They eventually do. They're not magic mm-hmm. machines. Everything's going to fail eventually. And everybody who's been in the world uh, involving anything of trying to save data knows that sickening feeling in the bottom of your stomach when you lose something important and you can't get it back. Oh,
0: I, giving me anxiety right now. I mean, like, like I can feel like right now I, I'm. <laughs> Sweating and
1: my skin is cold and clammy. I have a stomachache right now because there's been times in my life where, hey, I thought I had that saved on a reliable hard drive and it crashed. And mm-hmm. how am I going to tell Rob that this whatever <laughs> thing I recorded with him um, doesn't exist anymore? Yeah, that- and even, and even on, on, a, on a stupider level, this is such an old man conversation, but the Johnny Carson show. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, NBC archived all their shows, but tape was expensive. Storage facilities are expensive. And so NBC thought who 's ever going to want to go back and watch old Johnny Carson shows mm-hmm. really stupid so that there 's about a two or three year block of time of Johnny Carson shows that NBC taped over intentionally no archiving way. other shows that 's why you 'll see a lot of Johnny Carson uh, uh, archives in black and white, and then it all of a sudden jumps to him in the late '70s because wow. NBC taped over intentionally thinking, oh, who's ever going to want to watch that stuff? And, you know, not even thinking about, well, just he's your biggest star. At least keep it around for archives or selling things for the future. But they deliberately taped over it.
0: They never saw Hulu or Netflix coming because now you see all these shows like MASH and and Cheers coming back on all these streaming services. And could you imagine if they recorded over episodes of Cheers because they thought someday nobody's going to want to watch that? And speaking of which, I used to be
1: a television-aholic. Like, I still love shows. but Mm -hmm. I used to watch hours and hours of TV. I have gotten, uh, I have transitioned so far from TV into streaming services that I, I, the only thing now that I watch on live TV are sporting events. Oh yeah, I'm a big sports fan. There's nothing else I watch on t- on traditional TV or cable. That's it. Everything else we, we stream through Apple TV or through Netflix, through Hulu, and it is amazing the revolution that's happening because of that. I mean, people, yeah. I think that people underestimated. Uh, the, Rob would disagree with me. Rob thinks people are stupider than I, than I think they are. But <laughs> I think this technological revolution proves that people aren't as dumb as you think they are. Because for TV, like you're reducing everything down to, you know, 10-minute segments, 5-minute commercials, 10-minute mm-hmm. segments, and, you know, little sound bites and little things because you think that's what's going to attract the most people. And traditionally it has. But now mm-hmm. – it, uh, the, uh, with streaming services and content online, it used to be where online people didn't have much more than about a three minute attention span. Yeah. And now people are, are plugging into like 10, 15, 20 minute things. People are watching shows and entire movies on their, on their phones now. It's mm-hmm. like you're, they're conditions now to accept content that way. And I, I have no idea what these cable companies are, are going to do. I mean, I don't care because no. fuck them.
0: Yeah, fuck the cable companies. And I, I ditched, I ditched, I cut the cable probably two years ago. And I'm I'm never going back. Like there's there's no reason to even have any sort of cable or dish anymore because you can get live TV through like gaming systems. They have like their own live versions of TV, or I'm sure Apple TV has a similar type of service where you can like get a bundle so you can get all like the the local networks and then the cable networks like TNT and FX and all those sorts of things. And it's like a month to month basis, and I love it because there will be seasons like when the when the NFL season comes back. I will re-up my subscription for the, the the PlayStation View account, which is just that. It's just live TV, but it also has like NFL packages. So I can opt in for it for the six to eight months or whatever the NFL season is, and when that's done, I could just cancel it. There's no extra fees or anything like that. This isn't a commercial for PlayStation View, but this is just the way that the world is going to, and I love it. I absolutely hate watching TV now because they're so desperate to keep your attention that... I, I'm gonna sound like an old man now too, but everything's loud and everything is like <clears throat> whiz bang pop and there's there's not no substance to it. And then that's why I feel like they're they're put dumping all this money in all these Netflix productions and, and these original Hulu productions because they know that people are going to keep coming back to this and binge it over and over again, and it, the quality is just staggeringly better.
1: And I think it's, it's changing also the direction of entertainment because, like, uh, you know, 10, 20 years ago, uh, maybe a little longer, it was seen like if you're a movie star, you're a higher status than a TV star. Mm-hmm. Or if you have a great movie, that makes you a more important artist than having a great TV show. And now the quality of TV or the quality of shows that are available is so much more. And even George Clooney... Uh, is saying that he's highly contemplating just leaving films altogether because he says they're too expensive, they're too much of a risk, no matter how many talented people you have that are involved in it, you got to put $100 million into it, and even if the movie is great and makes 80000000 million, mm. you've lost $20 million, where he says with the right kind of TV show, the right kind of streaming services, you get talented people together, you get an audience hooked, it's not much different than a sequel. You're basically watching, if, if the show's good enough, you're watching a show with a bunch of sequels and you right. get to know the characters and you get way more sucked in. I mean, to me, the show Breaking Bad was my gateway into that because oh, yeah. the, the wife and I started watching it and I w- and we were just like just savages. We were like we like we were exhausted and we want to go to bed <laughs> but it's like one more one more you know and we're, and over and over again because if it's done right you get so sucked into these characters and mm-hmm. the great thing about all the streaming services and Netflix and kudos to Netflix because what they did with their original content Was hire brilliant people and get the fuck out of their way. Yes. Uh, They they, they would develop the show, you're in charge. And I've heard over and over again from artists who were developing shows and things through Netflix that they don't get much of anything in the way of notes. They just say, here you go, here's the right people, go do what you do. And I'm also kind of a stand up comedy junkie. Yes. Oh, yeah. So Netflix has like tons and tons of of stand up comedy. Uh, specials with uh, people who I've heard over and over again, say Netflix didn't tell me to say shit. They didn't tell me what to say, what not to say. They didn't tell me I could or couldn't talk about this. And like that's, that's, that's the world, man. Yeah.
0: And I love that because there's, there's too much bureaucracy in Hollywood that gets in the way that, you know, they, they put their four star agenda on the, on the staff, the people that are making the movies. And then they're, it just gets all convoluted. I love the idea that that Netflix has taken. I think what, what was the series that the first like their first original series was House of Cards wasn't it? I think it was their first, yeah. And so to see somebody like Kevin Spacey at the time who wasn't, you know, wasn't hated amongst everybody in the world, um he he basically it even the playing field for all of these people in the entertainment industry to say look, we can we can do this on a different level but still produce just as good quality and I I love that you brought up Breaking Bad because I feel like that was the first bingeable TV show that was like movie quality. And it was and I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that they were on a network that allowed the film, the filmmakers, the, the showmakers, the showrunners to actually do what they want to do creatively. And it just it just speaks volumes when you when you allow them to do that
1: and speaking of leveling the playing field i i don't think we're going to know the impact of 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 cell phones and the internet and youtube for 20 or 30 more years like when youtube first came out everyone thought you know it's it's cool videos of animals doing stupid things Mm -hmm. uh but now i mean with with All everything that's available right in the palm of your hand, right? There's so many things you can use it for. And I stumbled across a person uh, who was saying that this might be as important to society as uh, the invention of the printing press. Oh, wow. Because, I mean, now look, because you have immediate access to technology and information. And what's proof of that is um, countries that are under dictatorships don't allow the internet because they don't want people who they are subjugating to see how the world is and right. to see other ways of life. Get their own opinions. Yeah. Cuba, yeah. you can't use the internet. China, you can't use the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife uh, travels to China a lot for business mm-hmm. and she has to log in through a certain type of server to be able to get the internet. And make no mistake about it, that is an observed, whatever she's doing is observed and monitored. Really? Yeah. Uh, so, but and, and that tells you how important that is trying to control information from people Mm -hmm. that that tells you how important that device is. That's
0: fascinating to me, especially when it comes to people like your wife who travel to a country like China that has to access special servers, like, but they don't live in that world. They're, they're not a citizen of that country, but they still have to abide by those laws. How is that? How does that work around work? Like, is it just, is it literally like some sort of contract that, a business has with China that says you can use this internet. If you have like a visa as a traveler,
1: I I don't know the specifics of that. I would have to ask the wifey, but uh, the the company that she worked for for a long time is a global giant of a company. And Mm -hmm. China is quite happy to have their business because they get billions of dollars from this company. So they're there. It's much more of a happy handshake between that that, that experience as opposed to maybe if I were just an international traveler, Uh, but I don't know the specifics about that, but I, but I, I do know that, countries who try to regulate your access to the internet are doing that for a reason and their purposes mm-hmm. are not anything but nefarious
0: even if you're a visitor not not on business you, you're not allowed to use the internet while you're there is that kind of how is that how that works
1: it's at least limited okay and you, and you at least have to know that what you're doing is being observed at all times it's not like America where at right. least we have the illusion of operating under a free society where people have to have permission mm-hmm. theoretically to know what you're looking at you know <laughs>
0: exactly that's interesting I I that's terrifying and interesting at the same time but you know i i wonder like if you're gonna go to china and you want to yelp chinese food you know (gasps) (laughs) i i want to get to the internet to do that or map quest something you know to figure out how to get there but it's I, i guess we've lived we've been so immersed in this technological world and this free uh technological world that we have now that um it's hard to imagine a life without it
1: and there's a deeper level of uh, if people think, okay, what, what's the big deal? Why would a government or a country want to deny their people access to the internet? And I I came across this, this parable of uh, two fish are swimming, uh, you know, down the stream and they approach another fish and the other fish goes, Hey boys, how's the water? And the fish go, what's water? <laughs> because it, with, with the theme being like when you're in it, you don't realize it. Right. right. And so people who are denying access to the internet, to their, societies and their people they don't want them to know what they're in Mm -hmm. they want them just to function and not think about whatever whatever they're in and it's it's i saw a a 60 minutes documentary about cuba and just what a dismal state that island's in for after decades and decades of just horrible oppression and they have no internet and they have no no lots of things and Mm -hmm. it looks like a country frozen in 1960 i mean with with buildings deteriorated still have the cars from that era right the cars from that era and and the people you know, it's funny to think that like, like sitting where we sit, you would go, well, don't those people understand, like, aren't they upset by all this? Why aren't they doing something about, it? you know, when you're in it, you either don't know it or you, you can't see a way out. So what's the point? Just make the best life you can make you're stuck in what you're stuck in.
0: Yeah. Speaking of documentaries, a little off ramp um, on Netflix. And in, in fact, um, there's a new Vietnam war uh, documentary that Ken Burns did on for, from PBS. Oh,
1: I'd love to see that. Oh
0: my God. I, it's so I'm like how you and your wife were with, with breaking bad right now. Like mm-hmm. I cannot wait to go home and watch me some Vietnam war documentary. It, but it's, I don't, I have no predisposition or, you know, any knowledge of what the war was all about. we learned, a smidge about it in high school growing up, but I had no idea the, the what what the whole thing encompassed. And it's just a beautifully done, very, very, it, it also, the, the, the filmmakers are genius because they got people from all different angles of, of the war. So it's not like slighted to, obviously there's enough history between us that we can look back and say, okay, that was an awful, awful war, but, there's no bias to it at all, and he actually interviews people from the North Vietcon, the North, uh, the North Viet- Vietnam Army, and everything. And it's it's just fascinating. I don't know if you haven't seen it yet, you should absolutely look it up.
1: I've absolutely really got to check it out. But the, with any documentary, like I understand, no no documentary is a pure documentary. Every right. documentary is someone telling a story or a version of the story. But the best ones are the ones that cover both sides, mm-hmm. without like you you give each side. Uh, a, a passionate and authentic representation of their experience, and like the the ones that clearly that leave out half the story frustrate me. That's why um a lot of the stuff that Michael Moore, a lot of his documentaries and Fahrenheit nine eleven, the thing that would frustrate me is not that he was bringing up false things. He was bringing up things that were I think very truthful, but they were brought up out of context, and they don't tell all the story. And if you don't tell all the story it means you think your opponent might be right or you think what you're leaving out may reveal you to be wrong and and being revealed to be wrong is not a bad thing you want that just be, if you're wrong be wrong but don't don't hide half the truth from people so i got to where for him as as intrigued as i was by his storytelling i had to stop watching his movies because I, I knew going in i'm not going to get anything out of this because i'm gonna I, half the story is gonna be left out
0: mm-hmm. do you find yourself unable to watch shows like like the uh House of Cards or anything that that Harvey Weinstein has produced now with all the backlash in oh, Hollywood. See, and I'm torn
1: because Harvey Weinstein produced all of Quentin Tarantino's movies. All of them. Yeah. And 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 Tarantino might be my favorite filmmaker. He's certainly top two or three. I love all this stuff. Even the ones that are that are too far out there, like, nah, I like it. This is good stuff. Yeah. Hell yeah. Uh I, I have to, I think, in life, divorce myself. From the artist and the art, mm-hmm. you know if you're going to go through your life and and either don't listen to music or watch TV shows that have artists in them that have have checkered past or have done things you disagree with, you're not going to watch anything. I mean, John Lennon beat the piss out of every single woman he ever dated or married. Really, he's a horrible human being. I mean, wow. if, if you look at him in his life, he you know he 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 sings a song about imagine there's no country, imagine there's no religion. He changed religions like nine times. <laughs> he, he, he beat up his wives. He, he, he was estranged from his kids. He basically made children and walked away from them. I mean, he was a terrible person. Oh, am, no. I, am I supposed to never listen to a Beatles song ever again? I mean, you could extend that to Harvey Weinstein and to everybody. And True. I guess that makes me a selfish person because I'm, I'm disregarding bad people doing bad things. But yeah. I don't know what to make of the, of the Kevin Spacey thing. I mean, the Netflix people did what they had to do. and yeah. I think they did the right thing. But as a fan of that show, I'm like, I wanted to see this thing carried through. I, I wanted to see the end of this. I wanted to see the power play of his wife finally getting to the to the, the throne. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and I think I, if I recall correctly, the last episode ends with her looking at the camera and going, "My turn." Yeah, and I was like, "Oh shit, I can't oh, wait to see." Oh, that just gave me chills. And it, and it's and it's gone. Yeah, and, but but the, the artists like Kevin Spacey and people like that have to understand that. If you fuck around, this can be taken away from you. If you treat it with such disregard, it can be taken away from you. And it's so easy to think as a movie star or an artist, like you're used to so many thousands of people trying to bang you, right? And you're, it's, it, you, you just take it for granted that I can grab this person and do whatever I want, and it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And you can lose perspective. And and when you do that, it's, it's going to sting. Uh, there was a great – one of my favorite new um, – he's not new, but uh, a guy I discovered – uh, John Mulaney is a stand-up comic. Oh, he's great. He's hysterically funny. He, he does for SNL. Yeah, he, he, yeah. In fact, he does a fantastic, fantastic bit about his time as a writer at SNL. When he was like 25 and broke, he had no money. He like, I got this little shitty office and little shitty couch. And here's Mick Jagger on my couch writing a script with me. Uh, working out an, a script idea with That's me. awesome. And, and he was like, you know, and, and, and the the gist of the bit is, his friends asked him, "Oh, is Mick Jagger nice?" And I'm like, no, he's not nice. He's like, well, he's nice for his version of nice, but but he's like, you have to understand, he has been performing in front of tens of thousands of people for the last fifty years, mm. and, and like that, he's like, I don't care who you are, that changes you, mm-hmm. that changes you, and, and I, I had heard rumors for a while about Kevin Spacey, it, it, just that he. A, really, really enjoys being famous, which I don't begrudge him that he's earned it, but that he's a little grabby mm-hmm. and a little like, you know, hey, slap it on the dick and like just random things like that. And, you know, you just kind of heard those things, but. I give people the benefit of the doubt because I'm sure people hear shady things about me and I'm only a garden variety shady person, not a real shady person.
0: Yeah. And it's easy for for people to create rumors about high profile people and just kind of, you know, spread it as gossip. But, you know, and I guess in my mind, when that whole thing kind of dropped, I was like, okay, I'm not really surprised. I'm really bummed out because I I revered I really respected him as an actor and kind of as a person, because I always thought that he was just the same just kind of lovable guy. But turns out not the case. So it was hard for me to, like, kind of digest that. And I, I haven't been able to watch any of his movies. And I don't know if it's because, like, I'm not. I'm nervous to see him and and think the whole time of how awful he was as a human being. I just think that the narrative is playing so loudly in the back of my mind that it's going to distract me from actually enjoying the film and separating the artist from from the deviancy.
1: I, I the the biggest person that I had to come to terms with that was Bill Cosby because Bill Cosby was when huge. I when I was growing up and I had a, when I was growing up. He was my favorite. He and Eddie Murphy were my favorite comedians, sort of like, like the dark side and the light side. Right. Right. And like, he's because Bill Cosby was proof that great comedians don't just tell jokes like jokes aren't funny. People are funny. Mm-hmm. And then and the funniest people are smart and observant of life and they observe people and you can learn from them. And I love to stand up. And, I and uh, this past weekend, my wife was out of town on a girl's trip. So I got really drunk and was flipping around TV late at night and I stumbled across a marathon of the Cosby show. And I stumbled across. They're still airing that? They, I, that's what I, was, first of all, I was shocked at that. It was on like TV one or something and they're not paying us. So I'm not, they're not, okay. not <laughs> uh, wow. but anyway, and I stumbled across like the best part of the series it was like season two, episode one. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm just going to finish my glass of wine and watch this episode and go to bed. And I watched like five, six episodes in a row. And the thing I, I actually said out loud multiple times, God damn, this show's so fucking good. Like, oh my God, the show is so fucking good. And because, and the message of the show is true and, and all the things about the show are great and true. And because the mastermind behind it turns out to be pretty close to the devil, mm-hmm. the world, it's like, this is going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And I, I don't even know if, if, it, the show's ever going to run again, I'm surprised and shocked it was running no, now. No kidding. And it's like on channel 360 or something like that. It's not right. anything in, in, but still it's buried somewhere. It, it's, you know, it, you just, I just don't know about trying to wipe these things out of existence. I, yeah. I think sort of like the, um, like in the South, there was random Confederate monuments to, for things in the South. And I'm like, people want to have them torn down. And, and I, I think, no, you leave them there as a reminder. You know, for the for the same reason why um, in Germany, there are a couple of concentration camps that are left as museums, right? Because you don't want as depressing and horrifying as what happened was. It's like, don't burn them all down. Leave a couple as a reminder, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that letting the Cosby show run, if you can just accept it as the show, you know, nothing about the actors. I think it's an amazing show. And if you learn more about the main person behind it, you go, okay, that's a good reminder in history that sometimes people are awful and do awful things. They can, they can do great things in the world and be absolute monsters in behind closed doors. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's, i I share the same sentiment as you with Quentin Tarantino movies because I, I, I love the Hateful Eight. That's one of my all-time favorite right now. Um, and uh, Grindhouse, that that collaboration that he did with the other director Robert Robert Rodriguez. Rodriguez, yeah. Yeah. Fucking love those movies. And so every time I see the Weinstein Company in front of those films, and I'm it's like sickening. It is. But then I get then things get going, and it's it's easy to forget. And I think that if the in that case, because it's just the producer. And it's not necessarily Quentin Tarantino that was doing all those awful things. It's easy for me to separate that. And I think that maybe over time we'll, we'll be able to learn to look at projects or, or movies or, or even TV shows like The Cosby Show under that light where it's just that piece of art. And But I don't know if our uh, our society is ready for that. I, it, it's got to be some time, I, I
1: think. I, especially with, with everything going on now, you know, politically and, and society kind of overcorrecting after years of guys getting away with things in the workplace. And uh, I, t- I tell you a quick story. My dad's a really successful guy and retired at like 51. Uh, and once uh, I asked him, hey, you ever had – when I was a kid, you ever have to fire anybody? Uh, and he said, I've only had to fire five, six people in my career and it was all for the same thing, sexual harassment. Wow. And I said, you're kidding. He says, yep. And all five people – made over $80,000 a year. And anyway, we, we were having this conversation in the 90s. So mm-hmm. he said, all five people made over $80,000 a year and all five were warned. We're hearing rumors. If it's, knock it off, if it's true, if we hear it again, you're gone. And it continued. And so, you know, I, I, I think there's always going to be a small percentage of people who don't get it are going to do shitty things and are just going to have to get fired or arrested or whatever. But I think that we've made a lot of inroads uh, in just not making the workplace such a subtly hostile place for people, you know, mm-hmm. I, or at least it, it's in my experience, I, I'm very fortunate to work. Uh, in the restaurant community, and that's almost like almost every restaurant you work in is like the cantina scene in Star Wars. Like, it, like it's a, it's a it's a it's a mishmash of all kinds of workers from all kinds of different backgrounds. All the ragtag teams, all, all yeah. sorts of you know experiences with the law, and uh, all sorts mm. of like racial backgrounds and gender background, all, and all these things. So it's such a neat mix of people. I think that's that's why I love it so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that maybe it's not the same in other more structured corporate environments, but I think hopefully it's getting. A little better but with the Weinstein stuff it is like the movie starts you see a Harvey Weinstein production and you get that oh oh. in the same way that if you if watch like old sitcoms based in New York or old movies based in New York and the camera pans and there's the trade towers oh, like yeah. oh you're like oh Jesus Home like, Alone too. Yeah, yeah it's like it's like for a, for a split <laughs> second you're like sick to your stomach and I, I haven't been able to make that feeling go away I see any kind of footage of a movie of the trade towers and I'm immediately broke, broken out of the world of movie.
0: That reminds me of a show on Hulu called the looming tower. Have you watched that one no, yet? I'm not. Jeff Daniels is in it and he plays um, the security guy who basically <clears throat> was in the, the, he just had gotten demoted from the FBI and he became the security chief for the twin towers. And like his first day was September 11th. And that's oh, when, man. so it's a story that leads up to like all the behind the scenes stuff that happened with the, the intelligence agency agencies and um, the FBI all investigating all these, these suspected Al Qaeda operatives that are planning something big. And ultimately, you know, the end, cause it's, it's a limited series. Obviously there's not going to be a season two of looming tower because it's about right. the events that led up to September 11th, but it's an absolutely it's it's a great shot show it's a great storytelling um and i i'm curious to know about how much of it is true because they had to change a lot of the names and stuff for you know protect a lot of the people that are still either alive or to protect their identities um but it's it's a very fascinating in-depth look at at what was going on behind the scenes of september 11th and there's a lot of those moments when you're watching that show where you're like man this was so, obviously this was an awful event but it just kind of digs Brings up all of those emotions from that day.
1: On a lighter no- note of the trade towers and the "Have you seen" game, uh, there's have you seen there's a documentary called it's either called The Wire or Man on Wire, but it's about the, oh, yeah it's about man a, on wire yeah it's about a very famous. Uh, uh, tightrope walker yeah, tightrope walker. who he and, and his pack of people planned for multiple years to string a tightrope across the world trade towers. And the documentary is about all the planning that went into it and the actual journey of sneaking in the building with all these fake IDs and fake all this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. getting all the way up to the top. And they actually had to like hide at the unfinished top floor of one of the trade towers for like hours and hours as as security officers were coming in and out and they get uh, they strung a, a wire across the trade towers. This is like night in the mid 70s, I think. Mm-hmm. And this guy walks the tightrope. It's very very famous. I don't mean like he I don't mean like he walked it once. Like he walked it. He was walking across the wire. The cops got word what he was doing, so the cops were over there on the other side to arrest him. He would walk up to the cops. And then walk back the other direction. Wow! And he ended up walking across the tightrope like twelve different times, teasing the cops who were waiting to arrest him. And he and he would do oh things like God. lay down on the wire, like completely lay down, like he's taking a nap. And mm-hmm. get back. He was an incredible acrobat. But uh, it's, it's either the wire or man on wire. I believe
0: it's man on wire is the documentary because Robert Zemeckis made a movie out of it um, with uh, the the kid, the guy who played Snowden. I can't remember his name. Um, really nerdy kid. He was in Third Rock of the Sun. Uh, George Gordon-Levitt. Yeah. Yeah. So he plays the the tightrope walker. And I remember this movie came out like probably three, four years ago and it was a, it was a big holiday release, but it bombed. And I don't know if it's because we just don't really care about tightwalkers, but like Zemeckis made the, this big production, like 3d. And so you were like experiencing on the wire, you know, as you're watching the movie, you feel like you're on the wire and everything. And I it's a, a th-
1: really good movie. I actually. have a theory about that, about yeah. why it may have bombed. There are some things that are way more, intense and dramatic in real life and live in the moment than they can ever be retold on a movie screen so okay. that's why good sports movies about real sporting events are like you, you almost can't get people to go to them like, you, like good sports movies people will pay to see but if for instance we were doing a sports movie about um i don't know what like the joe montana 49ers and, how about the and-
0: Miracle? Yeah, uh, the miracle on ice or whatever it was. It yeah, was yeah, like yeah. Like a, the U.S. We're, hockey team yeah, where
1: the U.S. hockey team basically essentially an amateur hockey team defeats the Soviet national team. It, it would be the equivalent of a college team basketball team in America beating the Golden State Warriors. Like it's 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 that equivalent. There is not one starter on that u.s hockey team that could have even gotten a bench role on that soviet team and they mm-hmm. won and that's incredible mm-hmm. but the but to go watch it again in a movie you just don't get that sense of the moment and and the the context of what's going on historically and how how utterly huge of a moment that was and that was at a time when when it was us versus them it was america versus russia and they have nukes pointed at us and they're trying to tell us their way of life's better and we have things pointed at them we're trying to tell them our way of life's better and for this like that was How can you retell that in a movie and get out of it what the actual live experience is? Definitely.
0: And I think that there there's movies that can do it right. Like I, Tanya, have you seen that one yet? No, that's
1: on my list. I gotta see that.
0: It's such a good movie. And the way that they did it was really interesting because they actually interviewed like Tanya Harding and and her mom and, and they and her, her estranged boyfriend slash husband, Jeff Gelluli. Yes. Gelluli. And, um, (laughs) what a great name. (laughs) Gelluli. Gelluli. And, uh, They interviewed them like individually and then they reshot the movie with the actors playing them while like acting out the interview. That's neat. So while they were doing the interview scenes, they'd cut in and out and actually tell the story. And obviously Margot Robbie was playing, uh, Tanya Harding and, and acting all out from childhood to where she is now. And it's a fascinating, like it's almost like a documentary style movie, but they have like big name actors playing all the characters and at the end of the movie, you know, during the credits, they'll actually show the, the real interview clips. So you could see that what they did in the movie was true to the actual story and the, the, to their actual accounts of what happened um, in their lives. It was just a very, very good documentary-style big Hollywood movie, and I thought it was interesting. I, I, I'm just curious about your travels, because you do go around the world, not around the world, but around the country. Your I, wife I, is a world traveler.
1: Yes, yeah, she, she loves to travel. Yeah. I, I, I have this, uh, I'm more of a homebody. I, I have oh, this okay. uh, song that I sing where, as I swing my arms. I go, everything that I like is in my house. Because <laughs> like, in my house is my TV, my shows, all my... Favorite liquors and beers and, you know, they're all, you know, wholesale costs and not marked up. So I'm more of a homebody. Oh, okay. She wants to go all over the world. So in between that, we, we compromise and travel probably more than most people.
0: Okay. So you're not like, you're not like one of those wanderers like Anthony Bourdain, who's like, I got to get into the culture. You're more of just like the along for the ride type of traveler. I, I am, yeah.
1: I, and, I, and I try to be a good traveler and stuff. But like, like for instance, my wife's going to uh Switzerland uh, at the end of the summer to meet a friend of hers she used to work with. And they're going to go. On this train ride through, you know, Italy and Switzerland and Amsterdam and all this kind of stuff. So she she loves that stuff. I I this might be the the, the xenophobic American in me. I don't like being somewhere where I don't know the language. Like Mm -hmm. I feel, I feel like a, like a rude intruder. I know that most of the world speaks English, but it's, it's, it's rude to go somewhere and start talking to somebody in English and the Henry, hey, fuckhead, you're in France. Right. At at least make an attempt, right? Right. At least make an attempt to ask me for a Coke in in French.
0: It's, it's different when, with that attitude. I feel like that's not the popular attitude. It's I'm going to travel here and I better expect to be treated like I, I am treated in America. So understand my language because I'm visiting your country type of thing. And
1: I have to say there, there's an international, what's the word? A stereotype of the root, the rude American traveler. Mm-hmm. And I think that international travelers in general are, are very very rude and not appreciative of the local customs. And like in my in my restaurant, I work in a very international city, and probably half the clientele that I that I wait on every day is not from America. They're in town for business. For they're from China, they're from Japan, they're from all over. And when they're tra- family travelers, are just the fucking rudest. Because I, I think that's because if you're going to travel internationally with your family, you probably have money, and you probably have money for a long time, and you're probably unaware of how obnoxious you are. And that can go that goes for America. That goes for everybody. But I can tell you, I have seen I've seen it firsthand. It's not just the ugly American people who travel internationally with their families are obnoxious and rude. So I'm overly um, harsh on myself and I'm overly aware of not wanting to rub people's customs the wrong way.
0: I can share that sentiment, especially if you're just traveling a place like Hawaii. You know, it's obviously there's a big tourist area that's not too far separated from the American culture, but you also got to respect their the, the native culture there oh, yeah. too. Like you know? the
1: locals, the locals have their bars. Uh, yeah. My uh, brother brother-in-law, cousin, my cousin-in-law uh, is a cop in Hawaii. Oh, cool! And he's a really cool guy. He went to uh, Brown University on an athletic scholarship. He was an offensive lineman, so he's a big, strapping dude, mm-hmm. but he's like super laid back and chill. Like he talks oh, like this, he's Hawaiian, and he makes yeah, Well, he's he, he, that, that's his by sp- choice, right? Yeah, by, by his spirituality, he's, he's Hawaiian, and he's he's a great cop because he's an awesome conflict diffuser. Nice. Uh, and but he but he when we went to Hawaii, we hung out with him, and had some beers, and he's like he's like yeah, you just got to, there's some bars that are local bars that you know the locals go to, and and just just you know don't necessarily go there. Uh, and I asked him what the, the, the biggest problem as like, like, what's the biggest problem as a cop in Hawaii? He's right. just, it's like, it's beautiful <laughs> and sunny. And he was just saying, he's like, you know, the same problems that most cops have. He's like, you know, locals will drink, drink too much in the bars and right. tourists will drink too much and get rowdy and the fight will break out. And he's the kind of person that can end a fight when he walks in the room, right? He's just this gigantic dude, but his temperament is so chill that he can, he can enter a room and diffuse a situation without, without escalating it. You know, sometimes I think you know that that whole show of force thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I know that that's sort of the, the modus operandi, and that, that maybe makes things safer. But I've seen cops who just, with their calm disposition, can walk into a room and go, "Okay, you over there, you over there, get over there. What's going on?" Yeah. And like, so. But anyway,
0: I, I prefer that tactic, in my personal opinion, because I feel like that this it's it's the more rational way of dealing with things because brute force isn't really the 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 way to do it uh but is there any places that you've traveled with your wife that's been your favorite
1: um we have a soft spot for the caribbean uh i, I know oh. that like we're close we're close enough to fly to hawaii or to the pacific islands but there's something about the caribbean like just like the chill atmosphere laid back that we that we really like we recently went on a tour of it was like three or four different caribbean islands uh one was uh, St. Martin's, San Martin's and then Antigua and a couple other things. And it was amazing to see those countries are still recovering from the hurricane.
0: Oh yeah. Uh, that's
1: right. I mean, because I mean that, that hurricane just blasted that entire group of islands. And so we would do things like Rick, we're driving from the airport to our, our hotel and you would see like about a thousand feet offshore, halfway up a mountain, like shipping containers and like boats. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there was one in somebody's front yard, there was an overturned Cessna airplane. And, 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 you might think, well, you know, it's been whatever it is almost a year. Why don't they at least get the airplane out of your yard? And it just goes to show you there's so much devastation. They're like, okay, we'll get to the airplane. Let's first get to
0: electricity, all, yeah, water. water, all yeah. this, this,
1: this heap of, of debris and stuff and shit. And Puerto Rico, I think still might be uh, big parts of the island out of power. Last I heard, it was, it was as recently as three or four months ago, where massive amounts of the island still had no power. Wow! And they were—I uh, mean, their and, and water supply was 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 shaky. And I'm like, this is not some crazy third world country. This is American territory, an American territory with with no power, and that, that's up to very recently. That's devastating. Yeah. But we we enjoyed the trip but it was neat to see not neat it was uh it was just a a, a human education to see
0: it's eye opening right yeah.
1: it's just a reminder of uh, if you think if you think your life is shit and it might be you know you don't have a plane in your front yard
0: right that's a good point did did you find that it was cheaper to travel or, travel there because of that like how do they how are they treating the tourist industry down there after this devastate like do they have at least where you stayed, where, where they're operating resorts and things like that. The, yes. They, so that was uh, probably one of the first things that they started repairing, yes, right? In
1: fact, we, we got excellent deals on our crews and excellent deals on housing. Uh, not so much on airfare. Because, oh, like, you yeah. know, because you, you, United and Delta are like, you know, fuck you. You're paying the full freight. I don't care. Exactly. We don't care,
0: yeah. <laughs> we but, don't care uh, where you're going.
1: But the, the regular, like the once you get to the Caribbean, we found that they're offering crazy discounts on things just to get people back, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. I would, I think that the Caribbean is next on our list. We, we're actually seeing a commercial for that Atlantis resort. How cheesy it looks like even like the sandals resorts. They look, they look so cheesy and and campy and and tourist trappy. Uh But you know, if you want just to get away and, and forget about everything, get the drinks handed to you and not have to think. I think that would be one of the, one of the cooler places to go. Have you ever been to like an Atlantis type of resort before? Once upon a time, uh, my
1: wife's sister works for an insurance company. So she, uh, they sent her on, uh, she had hit some uh, crazy sales goals. They sent her to this fabulous uh, uh, resort type place uh, in Hawaii. And so she had an extra room. And so we went along and I, I found that the big crazy over the top uh, compounds like they're great for 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 luxury and it's kind of hanging out but that they they're a little too much for us we, mm-hmm. we prefer a little more smaller uh, a little more uh, boutique uh closer to nature closer to to people type mm-hmm. thing as opposed to because when you get those big compounds it just seems to attract people the obnoxious travelers and it maybe maybe that's a, that's a bias on my part but it just seems like the bigger the compound the more obnoxious the people that you bump into and
0: those rude family travelers yeah. that you were talking about that's where they belong just wrangle them there in, in the resort and let us go have fun outside of it yep. right um so you you said that you're more of a homebody do what do you like to do on your spare time do you like to do you like to cook I I love to cook.
1: In my spare time, I am, I'm trying to think of a word for it. I'm going to have to invent a word for it. I am a a media whore. I'm always listening to something. Like Mm -hmm. I have earbuds in from the time I'm awake to the time time I fall asleep. I know that's a problem, but I'm I'm either listening to sports shows or podcasts or like, so there's always something in my ear, uh, especially when I'm cooking. But I I do love to cook. And in the last probably three to four years, uh, we've transitioned in our house to where I cook everything for us. Really? I cook all of our lunches. Uh, If there's breakfast, I cook it. I cook all of our, all of our dinners. Um, It saves a ton of money and we eat a lot better. It's it's very, very easy when you're working long hours. And we do, my wife works crazy, ridiculous long hours to just fall into that trap of let's just get a fucking pizza. Like let's just get a hamburger. But if if you can just uh, get into that rhythm and that system, and and it took us a couple of years to just get in that rhythm of making things. So like for, for us, I will like once a week make a big batch of stuff, like a big batch of uh, like salmon and chicken and, and, and just various things so that we have good things in the fridge to reach for. Mm -hmm. So that if we're hungry or had a late night, we just want to have a bite and go to bed Bam! There's the fridge, and it's got things in there. Even if they're not like all the way good for you, they're not like fried chicken, right? And I love fried chicken.
0: Oh, me too. And I think I'm in that I'm in that weird vortex right now where I've 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 had the discipline in order to cook my own food, like breakfast through dinner, um, but life gets in the way. Life happens, and it is easy to fall off of that that routine and just say, hey, "Fuck it, let's go get a pizza or some Taco Bell." And I feel like shit every single time I do because it's not good for you. There's no, it it fills you up, but there's nothing, you know, no quality of, of nutrients in it. And we, we actually did one of those like meal services where they send you a week's worth of meals. So you like, it's all laid out for you. gives you the recipes and everything. Yeah. Like a
1: freshly and blue blue apron. Yeah. Hello
0: fresh is another one. And um, I found it to be very convenient but it's expensive. It's Is like, it really? It's like ten dollars a uh, ten dollars a dish. Oh man! And they send about four meals a week, and you know that, that it's convenient, but it's not it's not cost effective on in the long run. So we we did it just to try it out because we were in that that my wife and I work similar hours, so it's it's hard for us to to do that meal planning thing. Mm-hmm. But we're at that point where we have the meal plan. And in order to survive, because there there will be days we'll be so busy I'll forget to eat, and it'll be six p.m. and I'd been up for you know th- twelve plus hours, mm-hmm. and I'm starving, and I don't want to go to the fast food, but that's like my only option, right? Because
1: if, if you wait till you're starving, if it's six o'clock at night and you're starving, you want the, the fastest thing inside of you, giggy, yeah. <laughs> that, that you can get, and and that 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 can push you down the route of making bad decisions.
0: Yeah, and so I I've been struggling at, the, at this point. I've been struggling to find the, the meal planning that works for me. And I, I, I don't know if I need to start watching some more cooking channels or just, just research and read more on it. Um, but how did you find yourself transitioning from, from not having that routine to getting there? Did you watch a lot of cooking channels well, or anything you know, like a, that?
1: A lot. I tell you who I really fell in love with was Alton Brown. And he used to have a show on the cooking. There was one of the cooking networks called Good Eats. Uh, Good Eats. I, I I have watched Every episode of that show, ten times. Like that's really, really how I learned to. And I would basically do just much less complex versions of the things he would do. Mm-hmm. Like a, a quick dish uh, that I that, that I do all the time is, uh, if you want like fresh vegetables, turn the oven to 450. Get a sheet of aluminum foil, throw a bunch of asparagus on there, a little bit of olive oil, squirt a lemon, brush it with a pastry brush. Garlic salt, bang, in the oven, five minutes. Sounds and, delicious. And and, and and it cooks in the oven. What In the five or six minutes that it's cooking in the oven, you can take out whatever you've prepped in the fridge. And this is the the the, the Nick household. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever fish you've prepped in the fridge or chicken, give it a quick heat in the microwave. By the time you lay it all out, asparagus is done. Bang, on the plate, you're good. Yeah, that's and a good so, idea. And, you know, but that, I got into a phase – before we were structured about our eating, uh, both the wifey and I, but way more than me, way more for me, where it is we, I was eating too much junk food and and pairing too much beer with too much junk food. And I just got, <laughs> I like I was like, I'm 40 years old. I can't keep doing this. I got to start eating better and living better. Mm-hmm. So I, I think if you're hearing this podcast and you're 25, you're like, this is a dumb conversation. Like, wait till you hit 35, yeah. wait till you hit 40. And your body just not going to respond to pizza and chicken wings like it does when you're 25. So for us, we're like, all right, we have to, Let's do better on this. And so let's find a system. And it wasn't an overnight thing. It took probably six, eight months to really get in our groove. Okay. But once we did, once you do, it's like the grooves there and just stay in the groove and you're good to go.
0: That's brilliant. I never thought about it. The answer has been right under my nose the whole time because I have three of Alton Brown's uh, cookbooks and they're actually they're not just cookbooks. They're like they tell the story. He writes a story about his entire career. Like the first cookbook starts from day one of Good Eats, and it's it's literally like the Good Eats Chronicles. So he goes through each episode in each cookbook, and he lays out all the recipes from each episode. It's basically Good Eats in a book form.
1: That's a great idea. Yeah,
0: and it came it came with a bunch of DVDs and everything too. But I I never thought oh well I could just open up these goddamn Alton Brown books that I have in my house and then I could start you know, getting into those routines. But to your point about you're 40 years old and you can't drink beer and, and have pizza all the time anymore. Even uh, more recently, my wife and I decided to take that sobriety challenge last year. Um, and we were both 31, 32 at the time. And as soon as we did, we realized how much better we felt. And we thought, well, why don't we take this to the next level? Why don't we eat better? And we we started getting into that process of of cooking more meals together. But occasionally we would go and splurge and and have sushi and go get, you know, food out and everything. But we were very mindful of the stuff that we were putting in our bodies, um, at that point. And, and it's, it's easy to kind of just, like I was saying, it's just easy to get out of the routine. Um, so I guess just discipline, right? Just gotta, and I think meal planning, meal prepping and that sort of thing. And I
1: think a, a good place to start is don't, or you cannot tyrannize yourself you can't mm. on day one go i'm gonna eat kale and this and then like like ease into it like for me i i, I started off with okay no fast food so got that there's like no fast food at all that's so easy I, i'll do everything else and then okay and then like month number two no fast food nothing fried and then like month number three no fast food nothing fried eat something green every day like whether it's asparagus or they eat something green every day Mm -hmm. and that do that for a month and number four, number five. And so I I would progressively work it up so that you're not starting on day one of just massacring yourself. Because if you, if you do that, like, you you know what happens when someone tries to tyrannize you, you rebel. Well, of course. So if you try to tyrannize yourself, you're going to rebel against yourself. So don't, don't be an asshole to yourself. Start slow. Mm. Here's the big thing though. Month number six, I quit all bread and flour. And let me tell you, that I was I was having the shakes for a solid week. I was sweating and I like the, the whole journey, I wasn't thinking, I was like I, I wasn't being tormented by the things I couldn't eat. I was actually doing great. And like, hey, this is really great. I'm month number six and then I'm doing great. As soon as I quit bread and flour, it was on my mind. 24 seven. I'm like, I want, uh, Oh my God, I want, I want some brioche. I want, I want a bun. I want a club sandwich with triple layer. Just want a and, croissant. And that lasted for about seven days. And after the seven days, it was completely gone. It's what I, what's what I think quitting smoking must be like. I've never been a smoker, mm-hmm. but like when you're in the process of quitting it, it's on your fucking mind 24 seven. And I've heard from friends who have quit that right around the third week, fourth week, if you can make it that far, it starts to kind of, kind of, kind of curve, kind of go away. But that was my thing with food.
0: Do you allow yourself to bread or flour now? Like, Was that just a momentary thing to see if you could do it? I'm still, my wife makes fun of me,
1: I'm still pretty much... No bread, no flour. The The exception that I'll make is if we go to, like, a super nice restaurant and they have, like, house-made bread that's, oh, like, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to go to a, a place where, like, the best chefs in the world are cooking and making bread and not try the bread. Yeah. So I'll, I'll eat, like, a bite of bread. Oh, okay. But yeah, That's funny. I know. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but, 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 to, but to my hypocrisy, I still drink too much, you know? So, yeah. so in my mind, I'm like, well, you know, I'm not totally— tyrannizing myself. I'm allowing some, you know, uh, escapes, you know, I've decided to be really good with my food so that I can have an extra glass of wine and not, necessarily stress out about it too much
0: well, wine is fermented fruit so that's it's right. good for you and it's good for your heart and all that that good stuff is there any dish that's like a showstopper that you make uh
1: i do make a pretty badass pork tenderloin that i think is pretty good oh, I, I love yeah. doing pork tenderloin on the grill i think anytime you're doing a, a meat that's that low in fat you don't want to have it cook too long i've seen recipes are like oh, put it in the oven for half an hour like oh my god it's gonna be dried and or you're gonna have to cover it with so much oil and shit that it's just not going to come out right. So I, I do a very simple, um, I I make a very sort of simple vinaigrette in a small dish that's olive oil and lime juice. Mm-hmm. And I, I take a pastry brush and I brush the the pork tenderloin with the lime juice. That's after you cut off all the like the silver skin and all the stuff. Right. Brush it with the lime juice oil mixture. And then I have a, a mix of uh, garlic salts, uh, chili powder, uh, cumin, and cayenne. That's kind of a, I mix it all together and sprinkle it as as the seasoning. Mm-hmm. And like the the citrus from the, the lime kind of picks up the, the flavor and the garlic and the saltiness and all that kind of thing. and it it always comes out great and you almost oh. can't fuck it up oh, like I'll, I'll crank the grill up it's usually depending upon the thickness of the tenderloin about 6 minutes per side maybe 7 mm-hmm. but i have my uh, insta read thermometer which is like my I, it's my go to it's it in, like the
0: infrared one where you just point in like a laser gun type I ha- of thing i
1: have one of those to make sure this is how, how nerdy i've gotten i i have some pans at home they're really good if i'm sautéing something i use my uh my my thermometer gun uh, which uh, contractors use to find wet spots in the wall. Oh yeah. Like contractors walk in the point and go up, oh, that's colder, it's wet there. I use it for cooking. So I'll point it at the pan and make sure the pans come to temperature. Mm-hmm. And so outside though, I'll use my InstaRead and stick it in the meat. And I've almost gotten to where now I cook everything almost perfectly. And the thermometer is just there to make sure I don't poison our household. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's never a good thing. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's it's a handy tool. And, and I will... I, I, uh, it's it's an invaluable asset to me.
0: Insta-read. I'm going to have to get in, get in that.
1: Now, Ro- Rob Williams would make fun of me because Rob uh, I, Rob is, is yeah. an exceptional cook, and he's to the place where he can look at it and touch the meat and know that it's done. And I'm just not that confident with my cooking yet. Maybe in 10 years I will be. I will say this. It took me—I have just recently learned how to properly cook shrimp after cooking it for many, many years and, and fucking it. I know.
0: What, what were you doing wrong? Look, I mean, shrimp shrimp
1: is one of those things that goes from being— tender and delicious to hard as a fucking bullet in like a split second. Like it, it overcooks so yeah. fast, but you don't want, you don't want to risk pulling it off too quick because then it's, it's, it has that texture on the inside of like, this is not all the way done and right. like it makes you sick and finding that magic spot. I've gotten to where I can, I can do the Rob Williams thing and touch the shrimp. Mm-hmm. I know it's done.
0: What's the secret <sighs> it's,
1: timing, right? It, it, it just, just the timing and, and the same thing with anything that has little to no fat in it. You want high heat, at smaller amounts of time, you don't want to have it cook too long. Mm-hmm. Uh, make sure the grill's nice and hot as opposed to, you know, thinking, oh, I'll turn the grill down much lower so, so it'll, it won't overcook the shrimp. I, I do it smoking hot in three to four minutes on each side for like a regular size shrimp. Uh, and again, that, that time depends on your grill and a bunch right. of things. But it really is once you, once you get your thing down, you can touch it and you know. And another thing, thing I don't think is covered enough in like cooking shows, everyone's grill's different. So there's instructions every, every cookbook that say grill on medium high for eight to 10 minutes. Everyone's grill is different. There's spots on your grill yep. that, that are hotter and colder. There's, and people forget, people forget a lot. And I did when I was first cooking is if you put a whole bunch of shit on the grill at the same time, it's going to pull all the heat out of that grill. And so everything's going to have to cook longer. Mm-hmm. And so if you're afraid that's going to make your meat tougher, just do it in smaller batches, you know, because otherwise you're going to fuck up dinner or poison your family.
0: And I'm sure your your wife appreciates that you use the thermometer so that you don't poison the family. Oh, she laughs at me
1: because I, I'm usually drinking while I'm cooking. And so I, I do this thing where I'm like a cowboy with my gun. And I, <laughs> it's only funny to her, so.
0: Do you do you overcook your pork though? Because a lot of people no, make that no, no. mistake. I, I a little do, pink is okay.
1: No, yeah, that, people freak out about pink and pork, all right? I, I, disclaimer, I am not, I don't work for the FDA, Food and Drug Administration. I'm not a licensed anything. I'm just an amateur cook who cooks food and I'm, alive and doing well. <laughs> I will cook my pork until the internal temperature is 135 and I'll pull it off because the 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 temperature carryover that pork's going to keep cooking when you take it off the grill. It's going to rise about five more degrees, right around to like 140, 141. And that's pretty close to perfect medium rare for pork. And it, the pink is fine as long as you cut oh, it and pink it, is great. Pink is great. (laughs) As long as you cut it and the juice runs clear, you're fine. Even probably more, the the whole thing about pork and trichinosis, that was really bad in the forties and fifties. And it kind of has left America with the stigma of, oh God, pork is bad. You're going to overcook it. Oh my God. You're undercooking. Oh my God. like, no, like it's not that much different from steak in that sense. You Mm -hmm. can get a little pink and you're fine.
0: So I've got one more question for you because I'm starving and I need to get some lunch after this. Um, Do you prefer cast iron skillets or uh, stainless not stainless uh, you know the stainless steel type of skillet
1: it all it all depends if you're going to do anything with a nice crispy seal cast iron yeah and which for me like cuz cast iron you can get it lightning hot and that's that that's the thing that, that puts a nice crust on anything is a lightning hot pan cuz you want to sear the outside and give it a nice crisp but not overcook it in the middle so i've seen a lot of people and i, and I do this too sometimes well i will sear like a piece of fish in a cast iron pan but finish it on either a skillet or I'll finish it in the oven. Mm. But the cast iron pan for crust is amazing. Oh yeah, so good.
0: I think I think I use cast iron more, more than anything because I can't really afford the stainless steel pans yet. I'm getting there, but I don't want to fuck it up too bad. All right, I'm going to go eat because I'm hungry. I like this. I, I like this cooking talk. I think we should bring this back again. I think we should. Yeah. I'm
1: going to go drink because I'm thirsty.
0: Good. Well, thank you, Nick, for joining me again on this, next, on this episode. And sure. uh, namaste, bitches. The Rad...